on July 9th, 1918, is anybody around at that time? I don't think so. <laughs> July 9th of 1918 at 7.07 a.m., the Nashville-Chattanooga-St. Louis Railway train four left Union Station in downtown Nashville. And it was headed west to Memphis. It was a Baldwin G8A locomotive that looked kind of like this picture that we have right here. All right, this is old timey stuff, right? A train headed out. And this G8A locomotive was pulling two baggage cars and six passenger coaches headed to Memphis, as I said. Meanwhile, Nashville, Chattanooga, St. Louis train number one was, which was also a Baldwin locomotive, was on its journey heading east with a scheduled arrival time of 7.10 a.m. But it was 35 minutes behind schedule. It was coming from Memphis. So we've got a train, train four coming from Nashville, a train one coming from Memphis. And you see what's happening here. Shortly after 7.20 a.m., on a stretch of track known as the Dutchman's Curve, the two trains collided and derailed, killing 101 passengers and seriously injuring 171 others. The, the tragic accident occurred due to various operator failures and missed visual cues along the route. And it's considered the worst railway accident in U.S. history. Now, this horrible accident cost many people their lives. But remember this, no one set out that morning in 1918 with any evil intent. The conductor and the crew responsible didn't try to hurt anyone. That wasn't their plan. But simply by neglecting their training and missing some of their proper procedures, letting those things slide, a regular summer morning ended up in a terrible tragedy. And for many of the victims that were on the train, they went to their deaths without any knowledge at all that they were in any danger. They were just going about their business, sitting on the train cars, flying ahead at 50 miles an hour. Now, why on earth would I start off with this doom and gloom for you this morning? Because the passage that we're going to look at is doom and gloom today. All right, there's not a lot getting around it. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter's going to describe for us the way that evil runs through the world and how many people, just like those on that train, are headed towards destruction. And in many cases, they're not even aware of it. And even some of those, he's going to tell us, that have been on the right track can end up derailed. And Peter's writing these things to warn us and inform us so that we are aware of the danger on the tracks. Okay? Now, last week, we learned about the credibility of God's true prophets. We talked about that. We talked about the Word of God, the Bible, and how Peter has been telling us all along. Remember, two weeks before that, we saw the glory of God that he was declaring that he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And he said, that was so incredible in my life. It, it instilled in me this understanding of who Jesus really is. And it confirmed the word of God that has been passed down for generation after generation of the prophets, saying, as Jesus said, that he came not to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And Peter says, I saw that. I saw with my own eyes. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. And now we know that the word has been confirmed. But now he's going to have to shift a little bit here. He's going to say, even though we saw that, this, this, the true prophets bringing the real word, the word of life, and that the scripture was given to us that we would have discernment and understanding, he says that the danger that we're going to see and talk about starts with the opposite. We looked at true prophets last week, and now we start off with false prophets. So read with me in chapter 2. Here's what it says. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That just means false teachings. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth this truth that we've been talking about for these weeks will be blasphemed. That's a word that just means you're speaking against God or you're cursing God. That's what blasphemy is. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now, as I said last week, truth matters. One of the, the things that we talked about is the fact that when we have the truth, when we have real knowledge, when we have real understanding, that's how we can make the best decisions in our lives. If we don't have all the truth, we don't have a full understanding of something, it's really hard to make a good decision. But if you really have a clear picture, at least you're set up for success. You still make some bad decisions sometimes, even though you do know the truth. But if the truth is shady and you're not sure what's happening, it's really hard. To, to be able to make a good decision. But people often reject truth or twist the truth for other, all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they're not good reasons. Sometimes they're just lazy. Sometimes they're malicious. But people will twist the truth usually for their own gain. That's usually why that happens. And sadly, what you find and what Peter is talking about here 2,000 years ago what you find is that, that often that happens even in the church, not just in politics or media outlets. Right? We're at a space now in, in life where we question the things that we hear politicians say. No matter what side you sit on politically and, 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 and how the things that are stated, when you read news articles, you're always a little bit, oh, I'm not so sure. Is this true? Is this not true? We question those things all the time. It's probably good. The reason we have to question those things all the time is because we've seen so often that the truth's been twisted. And that happens. But it also happens, it can happen in church. It can happen with things of God. Teachings about God, about who he is and what he's done and what he's doing. And as we see here, this isn't just a modern problem. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, maybe, you know, in Jesus's day, the church was pure and good and right. But now, you know, after all these centuries, things have gotten off track. Well, what we find is, no, actually, there's been false teaching and things that have happened 
always. Go back to the book of Genesis. Lying has been happening forever, right? That's the way it is. And in fact, the Bible has several instances of false prophets bringing lies to the people of God. Peter's going to refer to one of those that we're going to see here in a minute. And Jesus himself warned his followers of this. He said the very same thing that Peter's warning us of today. Listen to Matthew 7, 15. Here's what Jesus said. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. The, the, the flock of God, the people of God are sometimes referred to as a, a flock of sheep. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's like, they, they look like they're one of the sheep. They look like they're part of the flock. But he says, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They're wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Here they are mixing and mingling among the flock, among the people of God. And you would think that they're a sheep. They look like they're a sheep, but they're not. They're actually a wolf. He goes on in Matthew 24 and says the same thing later. He says, for false Christs, even, people that are claiming to be the Messiah and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, the people of God. See, I've told you beforehand. Jesus, Peter, we'll look at Paul here in a minute. All of them have always told the followers of Christ, people, be awake, be alert, be aware, be familiar with the truth. So one of the things that I told you last week, read this Bible, know this Bible, know the word of God. Why? Because then you have the truth, which, which helps you discern the lie. And, and it's always been a teaching of the church. You've got to be aware because you can be led astray. Paul says it this way to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why? Because they want to hear what they want to hear. They want truth to be cultured and cultivated in a way that, ooh, I like what that one has to say. I really like that. That's how I want to live. So I want that person to tell me that, feed me that truth. That sounds really good. I like that. I want to hear it. That's what I'm going to follow because he says what I want to hear. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. Now you might ask the question, well, why would people do that? Especially in church. I mean, come on. Why would people become false prophets? Well, one of the reasons pointed out here is greed. Greed is what Peter says. One of the primary reasons that people lie in this life is to manipulate people or their perceptions of things. Often the goal isn't to mislead people just to mislead them for fun, but it's to gain something. I won't ask you to go back in your life and start doing an accounting of some of the lies that you have told in your life. And I've got a feeling that all of us are guilty of lying at different points in our lives. What motivated you to lie? Was it you just woke up one morning like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell some whoppers. I'm going to lead some people astray. I'm going to do some things that are going to cause some havoc. It might have been. Some of you are those kids. You know? Some of you are those adults. But why? A lot of times the reason we would lie 
is because we want people to either see us differently or to see the perspective differently. But oftentimes, it's not just so that they see things differently. It's because so we can get something that we want from them. That we can pull something out. Our greedy little hearts want what it is that they have. And we want to not use the normal ways of getting it. We want to figure out some other, some other reason. And that is one of the primary reasons. People are greedy. They're, they're covetous. They want something they don't have that someone else has. But what Peter says here is he says, look, there's going to be false prophets. They're going to come up. They're going to tell lies. They're going to spread lies. They're going to deceive people. And a lot of times the reason they're going to do it is for their own gain and for their own greed. But what Peter tells us here today, and this is his big warning. He says, don't forget though, that the, the thing that is coming to those people, the things that is promised to those people is destruction. Destruction. It's heavy. He says, there's danger on the track that these people are on. In the same way that there was danger on the track in front of these two trains headed for each other, they didn't know that there's danger there, but there was danger right there. And he says, those that are consciously leading God's people off track are in an incredibly dangerous place. I mean, it's terrible when you hear about some swindler cheating people out of their money. You know, you hear about some hedge fund manager that embezzles cash and does this sort of a thing or some, some shady business practice that is, is robbing money from people in need and all kinds of things that happen, right? And that's terrible. But it's even worse when you hear about that stuff happening within a church or through, among the people of God. I mean, come on. That's, it's, it's terrible. And what he says is, look, without repentance, destruction is waiting for those people. And that's what he continues to say here, all right? If it's not been doomy and gloomy enough for you, don't worry, it's gonna get worse. Here we go. Verse four, read with me. Here's what he says. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So what, what's being said here? And I'll just tell you, this, is, this chapter, chapter two, is one of the reasons that pastors rarely preach Second Peter. <laughs> they read through the Bible, they'll teach lots of books of the Bible, but go, try to find other people that have taught Second Peter. And, and I saw it going into it, reading it. Because you get to chapter two and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> how do you preach this? How do you send everybody home on the end of a Sunday? Hallelujah, you know, go live a, a wonderful day, you know, look at this. But this is why, but Peter says, look, I know it's, it's hard. We don't want to hear this, but we need to know it. 
And he uses here three illustrations of God's judgment from the Old Testament. Let me ask you this. You ever been around people and you start talking about God and, you know, they, they're friends from work or whatever. And you're like, oh, this person knows about God a little bit. And you start having this conversation and they start talking about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. And they're like, I don't get it. Like, it's so weird. Like, why did God have this, like, he's it, it, like multiple personalities, right? Because you read the Old Testament and he's like the God of wrath and anger and fire and destruction, and then you see the God of the New Testament, and he's like the God of flowers and butterflies and happy and love. Like, what's going on here? Well, that's not the way God is. Hebrews tell us, tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that was there on day one of, in Genesis is the same God that's going to be there at the end of Revelation. Right? He's the same God. He has not changed we see different aspects of his nature revealed in scripture. And there are certain things in the Old Testament that are veiled. We don't understand the plan of God completely if all you read is the Old Testament. There's prophets that are pointing to something that might happen. There's little threads of hope that talk about this Messiah that will someday come. But it's dark and it's veiled and it's unknown. And it's not until Jesus comes and actually reveals the plan of God that you begin to see how this all fits together. But the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. He hasn't changed. But what Peter is describing here, and it's important for us to know, is that God is a God of judgment. And I will tell you right now, this is hard for us to understand. It's hard for me to swallow this God of judgment and wrath. But it is who God is. And in fact, I don't think we can figure it out. And yes, I've read the arguments and heard the discussions and the theological treatises of this is how it works and this is how you function and this is how you bring it in. Look, guys, what I've found in my life is that it, there are a lot of things that seem incompatible that they're actually just incomprehensible. We just don't understand it. But what I do in faith is I trust that God is who he says he is. God is a righteous judge. God is also a God of mercy and love. And they are not incompatible. I don't get it. I can't figure it all out. And you probably can't either. But we trust that that's who God truly is. Now, Let's take a look at these three illustrations of God's judgment, all right? Now, this is going to be fun. For those of you who um, are, are Bible scholars in the making, this is going to be fun for you. Peter is going to, he's going to blow our minds today. He's going to, to show us two of the most vague, random, weird stories in the whole Bible, all right? And you get them all in one sermon today. So you're, you're happy that you came today. The first illustration that he uses there in verse 4 is probably referring, and I say probably, to a really vague reference found in Genesis chapter 6. Now, if you um, were in the dorm rooms of seminaries around the world, Genesis chapter 6 is one of the chapters of the Bible and this particular verse that people that start studying the Bible, they want to dis dispute and talk about and, and wonder about all the time. 
because it is so weird. It is so weird, okay? Um, in this, this passage, and like I said, it is bizarre, angels called the sons of God, that's what it's referred to in that, that uh, passage in Genesis 6, found the daughters of man to be beautiful. And so they took them as wives, all right? So you have angels who have taken bodily form somehow on earth and have gotten wives, human wives. Their offspring were called Nephilim, okay? Um, it's referred to, there's one other strange reference in Joshua where after the people have gone and and explored, spied out the promised land, they come back and they're like, they're big, they're strong, they're powerful. Yeah, the land's incredible, but these people are scary. They're like Nephilim. That's the other place that we see it. Giants is how it's often translated. So apparently these angels and these women, their children were what they call Nephilim, these giants, these half supernatural beings, okay? Now, that's all we have in our Bibles. That's it. The sons of God came down. They found the wives of the, the, the sons of man to be beautiful. They took them as wives and their offspring were Nephilim. That's it. Okay. Now, while the books of the Bible, even in Peter's day, the Old Testament scriptures, were the only ones that were viewed as authoritative and directly inspired by God, there were other ancient writings that the, Peter, the, the people of Peter's day would have been familiar with, okay? Extra biblical writings, meaning works that weren't found in the Bible, but they were still old stories and old literature, okay? Those books of, the, of, of, of writing, um, not books of the Bible, they're categorized as apocrypha, Okay, there's a fancy theological word for you. You're going to learn another one in a minute. Apocrypha. All that word means is they're hidden. They were books that were thought to be important, maybe good for study, but they were not divinely inspired and therefore not authoritative. Okay? Now, there's another set of books that are part of those apocryphal books that were categorized as, this is a great word for you. Use this in Scrabble the next time you play. Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha. That just means pseudo, false, and an epigraph, a writing, false writings. What those books were, were certain books that were attributed to other authors that they know, oh, I know that author didn't write this. Okay, for example, it would be like if I go home this week and I write a Star Wars novel, and at the end of my Star Wars novel, I sign it, George Lucas. And then I reveal it to the world. Here's George Lucas's, you know, hidden Star Wars novel. And boy, I could sell that with the Star Wars fans in this world, right? I'd probably take some orders back here. <laughs> All right, that, that would be a pseudepigraphal writing because I wrote it and I claimed that it was George Lucas when it was not George Lucas clearly writing this novel. All right, that's what the pseudepigraphal books are. They're books that were attributed to famous people or, or people that were, you know, they wanted to be seen as, but it wasn't them. So they're falsely attributed to these famous authors, Now, like the Apocrypha, the content could, in some cases, could be true and historical, but a lot of it isn't. I mean, it's a lie off the top, right? It's even signed wrong. And it's not recognized as scripture given by God. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because ironically, even though Peter has just told us how important it is 
to have the true prophets confirmed, how important the word of God is, how it's scripture, how we should pay attention to it and listen to it. Ironically, the next example that he gives is something that's out of scripture, that's not part of scripture, something that is, is, is one of those books. Because what it seems that Peter is referring to here is a pseudepigraphal book called the book of Enoch. So when he talks about these angels being locked away in these pits, these, these Nephilim, that is actually what is being referred to. Now, the book of Enoch was well known in the first century. That's what we have to understand. We're not the same hearers that Peter wrote to. But the people there, they would have been very familiar with this book. They had heard the stories and they knew the, the tales that were found in it. In fact, the book of Enoch is actually the only apocrypha or pseudepigrapha book that's quoted ever in the Bible. In the book of Jude, there's one line that is a quote from the book of Enoch. And Peter references it here. Okay? And, and, it's, and, and that doesn't mean that it's scripture. It just informs us that at least one line of it is true. But that's what we find there. In the book of Enoch, the sinning angels who had taken human wives and produced the Nephilim were locked away by the archangels of God in pits of darkness in hell. And also interesting, and don't worry, we'll come back for the rest of you in a minute, but for those of you that are geeking out on this, the other thing that's interesting here is where, when Peter says they're going to be locked away in hell, this is the only time this word is ever used in the Bible for hell. And it's actually not the usual, we've got lots of words for hell in the Bible, but this one isn't. It's only, only in this place. And the word is Tartarus. And for those of you who are like Greek mythology people, you might know that Tartarus was the place that Zeus locked the Titans, the lowest depth of hell. And I actually think that the reason Peter uses this word is because he's referencing kind of a, a work of fiction. <laughs> this literature that he's talking about, this pseudepigraphal thing that he's talking about. Okay? It's the only place that that, that occurs in the New Testament. Because here's what we have to understand. Peter isn't trying to make a theological or historical argument here. He's not trying to give us more information about end times and says the angels are locked away in the pit. That's not what he's doing. That's not the whole purpose of why he's writing this chapter. It was a very well-known story of judgment for sin. That's what he's trying to get across here. He's giving us these three illustrations that say God is just and God is a judge and God is going to judge sin. This, this actually would be very similar to a, a pastor giving a movie illustration to point out a scriptural truth. I might re reference, I'm just reference Star Wars, okay? It's an illustration. It's not saying Star Wars is scripture because I said it. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's to point you in a direction. That's what he's doing here with this, okay? And the point that he's trying to make is that God will judge sin. Next, the second story we see is also from Genesis chapter 6, just a few verses later, and it's the story of Noah. All right, now here's a story that's from the Bible. You guys probably know this one. Noah, the one who built the ark, the animals two by two, right? That story. That's what he's talking about here, Genesis 6. And if you remember that story, what happened there was the world was full of wickedness and God judged that it was necessary to destroy it. What was the point? It was judgment for sin. So the first story he tells, there's judgment for sin. The second story he tells, 
There's judgment for sin. The third story he tells, also from Genesis, found in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's not as well known as the, the stories about Noah, but Sodom and Gomorrah were two incredibly sinful cities. And ultimately, God judged them as well. Third story, judgment for sin. And the point that Peter's making here is that God will not overlook those who lead others astray with false teachings. He's expanding on this idea. He says, look, there's going to be false teachers and false teaching that comes into the church. God's not going to stand for it. He's going to judge those people. There's going to be judgment for that sin. And he goes on and describes their actions. As we back to 2 Peter, in the second half of verse 10, he says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as they wage, as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now, I think there's pity in Peter's voice here. When he's describing these people that have taken this path, these people that are leading others astray, these people that are, are bringing up these false teachings within the church, these people that are headed for a certain destruction, I think when Peter's uh, talking about this, there's, there's pity in his voice. He's astounded that they're doing what they're doing. He's like, do they not understand where they're headed? Do they not know the track they are on? This is not good. The angels that rebelled against God, at least they knew what they were doing. But these people, he says they're ignorant. They don't have any knowledge. They're not aware of the fact that they're blaspheming the almighty God. And he says they are going to share in the destruction of those who rejected God willfully. Did you know that hell was not created for people? It's not where it came from. Jesus himself tells us that in Matthew 25. He says, no, hell was an answer, basically an answer to a request of fallen angels. These angels that said, we don't want to be in the presence of God. But God's everywhere all the time. So how do you get out of the presence of God? How do you reject God? So what happened is God created a space a container void of his existence and said, all right, you want to be on your own and do your own thing. I will create a place for you that will be out of my presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's what hell is. It wasn't made for people. God didn't create people at the beginning of time and say, ooh, I'm gonna set it up for those that are bad. I'm gonna punish them. Woo, this'll be good. I'll make it hot and deadly and awful. No, that wasn't God's intent. That wasn't God's purpose. That, wasn't, that is not God's desire for humanity. His desire for humanity is that he would be in right relationship with them and restore them to eternal life, not eternal separation from him. 
It was a place for those angels who chose to leave God's presence. And here's what he goes on to say, Peter. He says, they, these people that are off track, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children. And what Peter is teaching us is he says, sadly, these people think they're actually getting away with something. They know what they're doing. They know it's wrong, but their greed has overwhelmed them to such a place they're like, I don't care that it's wrong. I don't care that I'm leading people astray. As long as I can manipulate them and get what I want out of them, whether it's their money, whether it's whatever it is, if I can get what I want from them, I don't care. What's God gonna do about it? but they don't realize that there is a real God who will hold them accountable. And that's what Peter's saying here. He says, look, it's daytime now, but eternal night is in their future. They rejoice in their clever deceit. They make their home within the community of believers. They appear to be faithful members of the church, but in fact, they're just using the church to satisfy their own greed and lusts. And the scary part here that he says is they can take down people who, who are, are, aren't strong in their faith and can't discern the difference between what's right and wrong. That's why I've told you before, and I'll say it again. People of South Point, learn the word for yourselves. Read it yourself. Know it yourself. Don't trust me or anybody else. I'll help you with it. But learn it for yourself because it's dangerous if we don't know this truth. You ever thought about how people get wrapped up into cults? You know, I've, I've watched a few different documentaries, Netflix doc, documentaries or whatever on different cults and things like this. And um, I don't make a practice of it because it's so sad. But you wonder how do people get this far out there? But most of the time, it's not just an immediate, oh, they were just looking for something wacky and that was wacky and so they jumped in. It's usually subtle and deceptive and manipulative and it grows over time and they get pulled in a little farther and a little farther and a little farther until before they know it, they're doing the craziest things and, and experiencing the craziest things and, you know, that's, that's how, it, how it goes. It's, it's this thing because they don't know the truth, they get taken off track. And that's what he says in verse 15. He says, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, to return to our train analogy, what he says is, look, these people are zooming down the track with no knowledge of the collision that's about to occur. Like I told you, we're gonna look at two of the strangest stories in the whole Bible. Here comes number two. If the Nephilim wasn't strange enough for you, here's another Old Testament story, the story of Balaam, 
that's found in um, Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, and it's also referenced in Revelation chapter 2. Here's the story of Balaam. I'll just give you a, a quick overview of it. Balaam was a prophet. He was not an Israelite. He wasn't of the people of God, but he was someone who was well-known in his area of somebody who heard from God. And he would have prophetic words that came true. And so he had gained a reputation of people in the area knowing, hey, if you need to you know, ask God something, you can go to Balaam and he might have a word for you. Well, as the people of Israel were traveling through the wilderness with Moses, they would cross into these different territories of these different lands, these different kingdoms. And one of the kingdoms that they came into was a, a king held by a king named Balak. And Balak, the king, looked out and he saw there's this million person group of Israelites that's marching through his land and he's freaked out about it. He's like, oh, I don't want this to happen. I don't want these people in my territory. Are they gonna come and attack us? What's happening? I know what I'll do. I'll go find this prophet, Balaam, and I'll pay him to come up and look out over the people of Israel and curse them. So he sends some servants to, to Balaam and comes with some money and says, hey, King Balak wants you to come over. There's this group of people that have invaded the territory. He wants you to go curse these people. And Balaam, at this time still being kind of the prophet guy, says, well, let me go talk to God about that because I need to hear from God first if I'm allowed to take that job. So he goes and God immediately tells him, you don't do that. These are my people. They're my kids. Don't say a word bad about them. So Balaam comes out to the servants and says, sorry, I can't go. Um, God told me I can't curse these people. So they go back to King Balak. Balak says, oh, it's a, it's a negotiation time. All right, he just wants more cash. This time, Balak sends back a bigger delegation of people with higher ranking officials and more money. And he says, look, don't let the money thing be an issue. Come back, Balaam. Here, Balaam, we're bringing you a lot of money this time. What do you say? Balaam at that point's like, ooh, now this might change some things because if I can, you know, score that, this is gonna work out really well. Goes back to God and God's like, Balaam, I already told you what to do. The answer is no, don't go cursing them. Balaam continues to negotiate with God and finally God's like, all right, go ahead, go, do what you're gonna do. So Balaam's like, all right, this is gonna work out. Hops on the back of his donkey, starts heading down the path with the servants of Balak. Well, as they're heading along the road, Balaam's feeling pretty good about himself. He's like, I got a biggest payday of my life coming. All I got to do is get up there and curse some people I'll never meet. This is working out well. I'm a big shot riding on the back of my donkey with all the king's men. And then his donkey takes a U-turn off the side of the road and goes marching off into the wilderness. And Balaam's like, oh my gosh, I look like an idiot right now. And he's mad at the donkey, yanking it back, slapping the thing. Who knows what's going on? And he can't get the donkey to go back onto the path. And it tells us there in Numbers that he's actually then moves into this vineyard with all the, the vines. And he's, he's walking down this little vineyard path. And then all of a sudden the donkey tears off through the vines. Balaam's getting all scratched up, clothes torn, all this happening. And he's, he, now he's just ballistic. What in the world's going on with my donkey? He's cussing at the thing and slapping it. And it's like, get this stuff together. So then they come through another little passage that actually has two walls on each side. So there's no way for the donkey to run. And the donkey just plops down flat. Balaam's on his back and the donkey just collapses. And Balaam is going crazy at this point. Well, what happens next is interesting. I told you, it's a weird story. 
God opens the mouth of the donkey. <laughs> All right? He opens the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey looks back up at Balaam and says, Yo, man. I don't know if that's what donkeys say. They didn't Shrek, so maybe that's what it was. Yo, what's going on here? Haven't I been a good donkey? I've been the don your donkey as long as I've been alive. Haven't I always taken you where you want to go? And Balaam's kind of like, yeah. He's like, so what do you think I'm doing right now? And Balaam's like, I don't know. And God opens Balaam's eyes. And what Balaam now sees is what the donkey has seen all along. An angel of God is in front of their path with a sword drawn. What God said to Balaam was, all right, buddy, you want to head to your own destruction? Go for it. God sends an angel and says, Balaam on his way, just cut him down. He's not going to listen to me and do what I tell him to do. I'm going to cut him down. So Balaam on his way, the donkey cruising along like always, sees the angel. That's why he takes off the road. Then the angel was standing in the vineyard in between the vines. The donkey sees that. I'm not going that way. Tears off the other spot. When he gets to the other spot between the walls, he sees the angel. He's like, I got no place to go. Plop. Now, as the story goes on, Balaam continues on. God says, all right, I'll let you pass. The angel steps aside and, and the story goes on. This is what he's, he's referring to. And what Peter is, is pulling out of this, because again, this is a story that's well known to those people. Balaam knew what he was doing was wrong. Just like these false prophets know what they're doing is wrong. But Balaam thought it was worth it. He said, I'm doing what God has told me not to do. I'm going to go and curse these people, but I'm going to get rich. It's going to be worth it. He had no idea the track that he was on. Now, look at the last section as we finish here today. Verse 17. He describes it more. He says, these people that are doing this, these are waterless springs, right? A spring is supposed to have water come out. There's no water. They're mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness, that place of hell, has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them, which is exactly what Balaam did. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, that's a pig, returns to wallow in the mire. What he says here is, look, there's danger on this track. It is deadly. It is serious. Now, I don't think any of you have aspirations of becoming a false prophet or a cult leader, I hope, right? That's not how you're, you're not setting out. Oh, that sounds great. Get rich and famous. 
But Satan has a way of enticing people into things against their own will until those things overcome them and enslave them. That's what he says here. These people don't necessarily start out this way and set out this way, but little by little, they head down that path of destruction. And sin isn't sin just because God labeled it that way. At the beginning of time, God didn't say, huh, let me think of a list of 165 actions, and I'm going to call those actions sinful actions, and all the other actions will be okay. That's not why he didn't label sin as sin. Sin is labeled as sin because it leads to death. It leads to destruction. Sin is anything that destroys relationship with God or with others. And the ultimate separation from God is a permanent residence in darkness. And if we allow sin to have its way in our lives, that is where it leads. Now here's where we shift in the message as we finish here today. There is true danger on the tracks, so to speak. There is. And that is important that we know that to be true. But there is truly salvation available for all those who would receive it. That's the good news that comes along with this. We are not doomed to that destruction. And even though the world was full of wickedness, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and escaped the destruction of the flood. Lot, who was living in Sodom, a city of sin, was escorted out of the city by angels before its destruction. There is a path to life. You're not forced to be on this path of destruction. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate's narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But there is a path to life. There is a way to life. God, in his mercy, sent his own son, Jesus, to provide rescue for us and to show us the way. And he calls us to follow him. You guys know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 5.24, Jesus said this, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Peter doesn't tell you this, these stories and doesn't warn you with this to freak you out, to make you think, oh my gosh, am I on the path to destruction? No. If you put your hope and trust in him, he rescues you from that. Your sin, yes, there's judgment for sin. Jesus took that judgment upon himself. You no longer have to bear that judgment. He carried it for us. But the other reason I think that we, we study this and think about this is not just for ourselves, but what about those people that are on the wrong track? People that are headed towards destruction. These are some of the people that we know and love in this life. 
We've got family members and friends and coworkers and classmates that we know they are literally like those people in that train that are sitting along having breakfast on a, a Friday morning thinking, oh yeah, I'm on my way to Memphis. Everything's good, everything's fine. And they don't understand that they're on that path to destruction. And look, I know that there are some Christians that like to lead with the destruction thing. You see them on the street corners with the bullhorns, right? You're all going to die. You're all, there's hell, the fire of hell is real. He's waiting for you, right? And, and there are some very, there's, you've heard it today. There's truth to that. God will not be mocked. Justice will be served. His justice is certain. But that is his role as judge alone. How did Jesus respond when he saw the wickedness of the people? Well, from heaven, when he saw it, what did he do? He said, I'm going to leave my throne and glory behind and go down there and be with those miserable people. But not only that, he didn't come down here proclaiming judgment on us all. Instead, he came and provided a way for salvation. He came in the flesh with compassion and a sacrificing love on behalf of those people. And I think as Christians, we would do well to spend more time announcing the good news of salvation than the tragic news of judgment. I'm not saying that you wash that away or push that away because it's real and it's true. But we're motivated by love instead of motivated by fear. We don't minimize the truth of judgment, but we carry on the work of Jesus, which is coming to seek and to save those who are lost. Congratulations, you made it through a dark and gloomy passage of scripture. Let's pray.